Welcome everyone to this week's edition of A Healthy Obsession, a podcast covering soccer culture from around the world. My name's Adam Thurwell. Today I'm joined by Thomas Rangan. A lot of you will recognize Thomas from his punditry work on being sports, but Thomas has worked at every level of US soccer. We'll be talking about his time as a player, a coach, when he was scouting for US soccer, and many other different pieces. Once again, thank you for everyone taking the time out to listen to the show. It's our pleasure to host, and we hope you enjoy. been a, a coach a player in the u.s for uh, many different periods of, of u.s soccer so what, what's that been like just as far as uh, your own uh, view of the evolution of the game in the u.s since you've been here yeah it's been it's been remarkable obviously when i first came to this country in 1979 as a 21 year old thinking this would be just a adventure and i will go back to the netherlands eventually and fast forward to 40 plus years, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. I've seen the ups and downs. I've seen the great days of the NESL where crowds in New York for three or four years during the Pele Beckenbauer era would draw 70, 80,000 people bigger than the Giants, the Jets, the Yankees. Um, a little bit looking back, more of a fat, uh, younger crowd, partying crowd. Uh, a new sport, so to speak, that all of a sudden appeared on the scene. And in some cities, uh, that still holds true. Uh, look at Seattle, that, that average is still 40,000 plus. Seattle Sounders averaged 40,000 plus in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm. And there's a reason why some of these teams have adopted some of the NESL names. But I've also seen the NESL fold in the mid-80s. I've seen the resurrection or, or the start of indoor soccer that eventually also fell by the wayside. Uh, I've seen a country without a professional league, uh, a country that was hosting the World Cup in 1994 without a, a real professional league and, and, and a team that, that the public took to, that beat uh, the favorites, Colombia, so to speak, and went toe-to-toe with uh, Brazil. Uh, I've seen the grassroots level explode in terms of, of numbers. Um, we've seen an improvement in, in youth development with the MLS and, and, and USL. We've seen drastic changes with the Development Academy and the demise of the Development Academy uh, after, um, you know, maybe, what was it, two decades. We've seen MLS and USL taking in a stronger and better uh, approach towards uh, youth development and their academies and and the professional clubs should be the ones that lead the developmental charge in the development of, of, of youth players in, in America. My first under-20 team in 203 that included Eddie Johnson, who was the Golden Boot winner, Clint Dempsey, Chet Marshall, were predominantly college players. You look at the last two cycles of the under-17s and 20s in the last two World Cups, the players are predominantly or all pros, most of them in Europe right now. So we've, we've, the landscape has changed. Uh, MLS has changed, obviously, uh, a lot of things. Um, but we're still, <laughs> even now, talking about the same problems that we had when I first arrived in this country in 1979. And when I took my coach's license, while I was still playing, um, I think coaching education is still lagging. 
I, I still think that we miss a lot of players in, in, in our country. We missed them 40 years ago. We still miss them now. So there's still so much work to be done for a young, a young soccer nation. But, but if you look at what has happened clearly over the last you know, 25 plus years um, due to MLS and the investment uh, of owners that believe in the future of this game uh, has, has clearly uh, put MLS back on the map. In the meantime, <laughs> I coached languages at Berlitz. I owned a soccer locker to make things work for me financially. I coached high school, I coached college, and eventually I was able to get into the inaugural year in 1996 as the head coach of the Tampa Bay uh, Mutiny. So for me personally, it's been one hell of a great roller coaster ride. And, and similar to soccer, uh, we've become better. I, I, I wouldn't surprise me if we can, we can make a, a real run in 2026 uh, because those young players that are playing their skills now in, in Europe in particular, and still some exceptional Americans in, in MLS will all be in their prime. And I'm talking about Weston McKinney, uh, obviously uh, uh, Zach Steffen, Polistic, and, and obviously the list goes on of in particular players in the Bundesliga that will be at their peak in 2026, um, 28, 29, 30-year-olds. Um, that could surprise the, a few people in home soil. Do, do you think, you would mentioned a few players there that have gone abroad, they've gone to play in Germany, and obviously Pulisic is in uh, London now. But do you think that... There's, there's a little bit of a conflict between the MLS becoming stronger and all the best young players going overseas where they're going to play at a higher level. Do you see that there's a bit of a conflict of interest there or do you think that that's just kind of a natural progression? Yeah, it, it is a natural progression. I mean, when I was part of MLS and I coached four teams, uh, including the Tampa Bay Mutiny, that <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. Chief mm. USA, that's not part of MLS anymore. DC United clearly is where it won a championship. New England uh, with Bruce Arena now is is going to look at doing things right from a financial standpoint. The Crafts have been great owners, but have never really pursued uh, building a true soccer facility. So some of those games are still played in in the NFL, and and it was a buying league for many years, and now it's become slowly a, a selling league for young Americans, but also for um, in particular, Central and South American players in their uh, mid-20s that are using uh, MLS as a stepping stone to go to Europe. And, and that's, there's nothing wrong with, with, with that. Um, and MLS can still uh, survive and do very well uh, with the talent base that is, that is currently there. And, and with the rate of young players coming through the system, and now being part of first teams in, in MLS, that's a natural evolution that will continue to go so. And the next step, maybe for MLS to be able to sell certain players, but also to keep some of those players here because the, the pockets are deeper and the level of play uh, hopefully will be somewhat comparable uh, to uh, some of the European uh, leagues, although we'll, we'll never get really there. Uh, but I think there are some similarities and there's a reason why players go to the Bundesliga which is a more athletic, a higher tempo league uh, than, for instance, Serie A or La Liga is, uh, or even League 1, for that matter, where we don't see too many Americans because their skill set is probably still better for, for the Bundesliga, uh, where, where it's not for other uh, leagues in the world where technique and tactics maybe play a bigger role. 
in particular technique play a bigger role than maybe in the Bundesliga. Um, where, as I said again, don't get me wrong, there are some great teams out there in Bayern Munich and, 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 and Dortmund, but overall that league suits uh, our American players' skill set more than maybe most other leagues. Is there someone over there, some of the players over there right now, there's, is there one that stands out for you that's like a, a real like breakout player that you, you enjoy watching? Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed Gio Reyna. Mm. Not as much, unfortunately, at the World Cup where, where the team itself underperformed. It was very hard on that level. I mean, we, we beat uh, Argentina with Messi at, at an under-20 level. You know, in 9 we beat Argentina 1-0. Mm. Uh, Messi didn't start that game, but came off uh, on, on came on on the second half. Actually, was a halftime substitute. Uh, so again, even even that level, the, the greats cannot single-handedly change a game. When you go a little bit further up, they can still they they, they can. Um, so, do I I have any particular uh, uh, favorites there? I think think that Giorena is on the pathway uh, of. Um, Christian Pulisic and, and will eventually end up going, you know, to uh, the EPL is still on, on most players' minds. Even when I was the coach of the under-21s so or the under-20s and I went to four uh, under-20 World Cups, uh, the EPL, because of all its great bombastic far, so to speak, and the way it's televised and the crowds uh, always is some something of a sexy kind of choice for most American players. But if I look at development, I think that the Netherlands, look at Michael Bradley, where he started, uh, Germany, uh, and even France, uh, look at, at Wea, uh, probably have better uh, structures for our players to hone their skills for one or two years and then make the step uh, to the next level. Um, you know, you could look at Yetlin right now. Yetlin has become probably a non-starter for Newcastle. Um, so it's very important that these guys make the right choices to what team they go to abroad, that their agents buy into that and don't necessarily go for the money first and foremost, but think about their development. Um, Tyler Adams, to me, is a, is a great example. A guy goes over halfway through the season in the Bundesliga, because it was a January uh, deal, I think, and steps into the first team. And Leipzig <laughs> is, in the, is in the Champions League right mm -hmm. now. Leipzig, in the last few years, has become... Uh, next to Schalke, Dortmund, and Bayern, a dominant team. So for an American to walk in there and push somebody out of starting 11 of a Champions League team, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. And do you see a trend emerging in the States with some of these young guys where when you were growing up in, in um, Holland, there's, uh, if you're old enough, you're, you're good enough, right? So you're 15, you're 16, you're, you're getting signed to, to clubs to go into their academies. Do you see that happening here where we kind of remove that, that process of going to college and then the draft system? Do you, do you see that trend kind of changing here where players, younger players will be picked up earlier? Yeah, and I think a great example is the, the, the combine and, and the draft. Uh, it becomes less and less important. Uh, it's, it was a bloodline in the early days in MLS. You know, you, you, you picked five, six, seven college players in, in, in the draft. You spend a lot of money in, in scouting in, in the college scene, hopefully do to make the right uh, decisions. Uh, but slowly, you talk to coaches, uh, you talk to administrators. In, on the technical side, they feel that, that the college game 
is not where, with with the rare exceptions, I think that, um, uh, what's his name, the kid in Seattle is probably a great example of that you can still go to school for four years and, yeah. and, and become a starter for the U.S. national team. But that's an outlier. I, I don't see that happening very often anymore due to the restrictions in 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 um, in in soccer in this country or particularly the college where they where they're student athletes and can only play three to four months out of the year saying that um you know in in 207 we beat uruguay in brazil and and uruguay played with luis suarez and cavani on top we beat him three two in in overtime and michael bradley scored the winner i got two college players uh, as center backs playing against Luis Suarez and we just sold from Groningen to Ajax for a pretty good, handsome transfer fee. But the interesting part is if you look thereafter, my two center backs um, never really materialized in, in, in MLS. And Luis Suarez went back to Ajax to train every day on the highest level. Um, that's a huge, huge difference in, in terms of development at ages 17, 18, 19, where, where you need to be in a daily good environment and play good games, which doesn't happen, didn't happen really in the development academy structure where there was too many easy games for particularly MLS teams that were just too good. Um, so it's interesting to see that on any given day, we can beat a team with big stars. We beat Brazil as well with, with Marcelo, with uh, uh, Silva, with Pato, with Joe, um, uh, Renato Augusto. Uh, but if you look now where they are and where the majority of my players are, uh, quite a few of those players are not part of their senior national team and of that group. It really ended up being Michael Bradley and, and Josie Altador that really made it to, uh, uh, to our senior national team. So, so comment, like you mentioned that we had this period where we were beating all the big powers in the game and we seemed to be on this great trajectory we're growing, the game's growing from MLS to the national team. And then we hit a road bump, right? In 2018, we don't qualify. So what do, what do you think happened there? What was the, the culmination of all these things coming together for us to kind of grind to a halt as far as progress goes? I mean, I, I got fired uh, by U.S. soccer um, by not qualifying uh, for the 2011 World Cup. We mm. lost... Um, against Guatemala, in Guatemala, during qualifying. Guatemala went to the World Cup, but we did not. And I was basically told that, listen, in CONCACAF, uh, Thomas, we should qualify, you know? Mm. And, and I said to the hierarchy, I said, guys, we are not gonna go to every World Cup from a 17 and a 20 level senior. We're gonna miss once in a while. Holland did, Italy did. Uh, England. Uh, yeah, there will be some outliers that sometimes make it, uh, and not. And I think that's just the nature of, of of the game. Are we in a weak region? Should we most of the time qualify? Yes, we did. Were we behind the the eight ball uh, when Bruce Arena took over? Uh, when after what was it, two or three or four games, uh, we got only one one and lost two or three, um, but that group just in the end didn't get it done and we can speculate or, or rehash all of that. I think that's just uh, mm. um, nature at its best. And, and I think um, 
it probably made us realize that we needed to change certain things, which we, we've done in our structure with hiring Ernie Stewart, with appointing Greg Berhalter, like him or not, but I think he's for this, uh, this day and age the right coach. He's a good teacher of the game. He's tactically very astute. Uh, he went abroad for six, seven, eight years to play. Didn't want to play in the U.S., but wanted to start in the Netherlands in the third division, work his way up to the second, first, ended up playing for Crystal Palace in the Bundesliga, uh, coached in, in MLS, but then went abroad to, to coach in, in, in Sweden. So I think he's the right guy for the job, young, with a young group, um, more data-driven than the old-school coaches like Bruce Arena, Bob Bradley, and... and uh, Jurgen Klinsmann um, doesn't have necessarily the, the great reputation that some of those former coaches did have. Mm. But I think if you look at the world right now and you look at Nagelsmann, uh, some of the younger coaches you see around the world, uh, Nagelsmann at RB Leipzig, uh, younger, more democratic, uh, being able to push the right buttons with players because that's what it's all about, communication and man management. Uh, yeah, like the Jurgen Club, the players want to play for you and, and, and have, a, have a plan, a really short and long-term plan, which the U.S. Soccer Federation has right now. Every coach uh, on the respective youth national teams have to be living in Chicago. That never happened before. Mm. My interaction with my peers uh, were, were infrequent. There they can they talk every, every day about their philosophy and what the progress is of a 15-year-old versus an 18-year-old. Uh, what tournaments to go to uh, to test themselves, what uh, camps make the most uh, sense, um, getting scouting in-house and making sure that both domestically and internationally we're doing the right job in scouting players, uh, dual citizens or just exceptional players that we're trying to find to become part of our youth national teams and eventually our senior national team. So there's a real vertical integration right now um, that makes a lot of sense, and we never really had before. Definitely, and you've seen these different cycles for U.S. soccer. So you mentioned the DA is disbanded after, did you say 20 years It's the DA was functioning? Yeah, no, I can't remember if it was 20. It's probably a little bit less. It was more than okay. 10. I mean, I was part of the think, think tank to put this together. Mm. Uh, and, and that was probably in... Two oh no, two oh five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, it's about 12, 14, 15 years maybe that, that it wasn't in its existence. And at that time, you felt it was the right thing uh, to do create better competition. Um, at the end of the day, again, the teams with better facilities and more money ended up being part of that. Uh, the smaller clubs, um, <laughs> war talent is, by the way, uh, mm. could couldn't be part of the, uh, uh, the development of uh, academy because they didn't meet certain criteria uh, within that. And that had more to do with, with not talent, but it had to do more with, let's face it, at the end of the day, pay to play money um, and facilities uh, and, and coaches. Um, saying that, as I said again, we've done a better job and we've brought in some outside help to get our coaching education going. But, but I think at the end of the day, if you look at the hierarchy within U.S. soccer, your professional teams, uh, which are now 25 plus, you look at the USL championship, where there's some money as well. Uh, they now also have a tiered 
academy system underneath them. So now you're talking about 60 to 70 clubs uh, that are leading the way. And then everybody else just needs to find their, their niche underneath that, you know, that could be, as I said again, developing players for an FC Dallas if you're 50 or 60 miles outside of uh, the city of Dallas and maybe getting some form of comp compensation so you can continue to invest that back into your small club where there might be one or two talented players that could make the move there. Uh, it's such a huge country. And that's one of the problems pe people look at, talk about Dutch reboot in, in Germany. They talk about Iceland. Why can Iceland go to a Euros or a World Cup or whatever it might be? Uh, and and <laughs> the, the, the amount of manpower, but more so money, um, you know, Holland goes one-eighth into the state of Florida. Right. Um, Germany is a little bit smaller than Texas. We have 52 states. Mm. Uh, Germany spent $100 million. If you want to do exactly what Germany did with training facilities, with coaches, with scouts throughout every, um, every state, you're talking about $2.2 billion, which is obviously impossible. So U.S. soccer needs to really focused on areas um, which unfortunately are the lar larger metropolitan areas but i'm sure we're missing a kid somewhere in nebraska or south dakota or, where we don't have our tacticals right now or we don't have a scout uh, so that ge geographically the u.s works against you to be able to centralize certain things i used to drive or bike to seist when i played for the dutch olympic team where we would get together uh, once uh, by uh, bi-weekly um, and all the players would be able to get there within a half an hour from regardless where they live here we got to fly players <laughs> to a central point to get a 10-day camp in for instance the amount of money that's attached to this is 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 staggering mm. and <clears throat> the you mentioned that pay to play do you think that this has become almost a bit of a class issue here where we are missing players because they can't afford to go and do a 10-day camp or, you know, mom and dad can't afford to send their kids to play for this club that maybe there's certain opportunities for. Do you think the U.S. soccer has addressed that since they're looking at the DA and they're looking at uh, maybe the professional teams having the academies? Is that something that's at the forefront of the U.S. soccer mindset? Or do you think that this is just going to continue to be an issue where, it's a pay-to-play, and there's an income gap that if you can't afford it, you're not going to get looks at. Yeah, I mean, yes, U.S. soccer is trying to address that. And the way they're addressing it is trying to force as many or try to make the professional teams who now have scouting departments, who now have not just one person in the scouting department, but three, four, or five uh, in the scouting department that do a pretty darn good job identifying talent. But, yes, um, when I first saw Clint Dempsey, and he played in a college game. I actually went, went to watch uh, Stuart Holden and Ricardo Clark. Somebody had said you should watch these two players. It was Clemson. Um, Clemson played versus, uh, I don't even know where, where, where Dempsey was. But I said, why, why aren't you representing a state team? Why aren't you, back then it was, you know, uh, regional teams. Mm. Uh, the Olympic Development Program, they called it. He said, well, I, we, my, my parents both work. They can't afford driving me to Dallas so I can be with uh, uh, FC Dallas. So I ended up going with my older brother, playing in, in illegal leagues, basically, without referees uh, every weekend. And I would play against older 
mostly Mexican migrant workers. And, and, and Clinton was probably the first street smart player I encountered because you're absolutely right. Back then, and still to a certain extent, uh, class was, I had a predominantly white upper middle class team. Mm. Kids that went to Stanford, uh, yeah. Harvard, you know, uh, where, where obviously all parents uh, were driven to get their kids scholarships when they're good players. None of those parents back in when I first started in 202 even thought about their kids turning pro or, or going to um, going, going abroad. And, and when these issues came up, people talked about, well, what about my girlfriend or my dog? Or <laughs> what about my, my studies? You know, so I, 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 we don't have a soccer culture that works against us. We still don't. It's somewhat artificially manufactured. Uh, we still can operate pretty decently. Uh, we still make it most of the time out of group play at the World Cup uh, on all levels, 17s, 20s, and, and our senior uh, national team. We haven't gone to the Olympics. That's important because we, mm. we missed a developmental uh, uh, situation there with qualifying games, with real games, because the Olympic Games are being taken seriously now also by the big, bigger uh, uh, world powers. Uh, and we haven't gone in two consecutive cycles, I think. So it becomes important that we give our younger players an extra way to develop. But yes, uh, socioeconomics still play a huge role in, in pay to play. And yes, the Hispanic player, the inner city African-American player that still tends to go to towards the NBA or NFL, mm. uh, we still can't really reach. And they can't reach us because, as you said, they can't afford to play for clubs. Um, and I had children myself. I know how expensive it is. Uh, when you get driven by peer pressure to go with an under-14 team to California and spend $1,000 for your kid to play in a tournament or maybe a, a college coach can see them, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty – the pyramid is really upside down. Um, and as long as it stays upside down, um, driven by MLS, which is the the top of the pyramid, mm. and then the base or the grassroots level is still struggling with you know, how how can we make this this better? And the collapse of the DA has put a lot of clubs at risk. And where are we? Where do we go? And what is our what are our priorities outside of the fact that we need to sustain staying in business or we want to continue to make a lot of money because there is a lot of money to be made in youth soccer. Yeah, and, and, and that's probably what I've noticed is like there's, there's this constant conflict of interest where organizations are, are being not forced, but they have to make money, right? Because you've got people that are getting paid salaries and you growing up in Europe know that when, when I was growing up playing, you brought you know a pound in England and that just kind of paid your subs and, there's a volunteer coach and, and then until you go to the next level, but here it's, you know, coaches are making a, a full-time living that are coaching U12 teams. So that conflict of interest is, it's maybe holding us back, do you think, slightly? That, that how, how do you overcome that? How, how does that go away to where you can, it, it does become more accessible for everybody? Yeah, that's, that's a, a really good question. And, and, and as you can see, we're still, you know, still trying to find answers uh, uh, for for that. I, I I'm I disagree a little bit with you. Maybe I'm wrong, uh, but but unfortunately, in most youth clubs, when you get to a, a certain level, 
mm-hmm. where it gets more serious. The older teams normally have a coach that gets paid quite well. So we're talking about the under 18, 17, 16. And then you go underneath there, they don't get paid. And, and, and again, also there, it's a inverted uh, pyramid. Because if you go to Ajax, Dennis Bergkamp is coaching the under 10s. Hmm. So the best coaches in the great developmental countries like Portugal, like Holland, like Belgium to a certain extent, France, um, the better coaches are on are with the youngest players. But those coaches are compensated just as well as our under-19 or the under-21 coach uh, within the Ajax system, uh, for instance. And in order for our better coaches to make a living, they tend to, or their clubs, hire them uh, for players that, let's face it, at 17, 18, you're not fully developed. But it's going to be very hard for a coach to make a real real change in your in your skill set. Uh, whereas it's proven between ages 7 and 12, that's, that's where we can make the real difference, in particular, um, you know, from a technical uh, uh, standpoint. Uh, so, yes, how do you, how do you address that? Uh, and, and how do you address that in particular uh, with the clubs now that are not part of a professional uh, setting? Uh, and <laughs> it's still the biggest youth sport in the United States. We're talking about millions and millions of, of players. We're talking about pretty good facilities. Uh, we're talking about average to poor coaching. Um, so there's a huge disconnect uh, between you know the talent that we have the way they get uh, uh, coached and the pathway for an eight-year-old. What 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 is a pathway of an eight-year-old look like? <laughs> yeah. When he gets when he gets born in South Dakota or even a hundred miles away from 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 uh, Dallas or in you know a <laughs> hundred miles away from 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 uh, L.A. Uh, what is the pathway of a, of a very talented eight-year-old? His parents are going to coach him. They don't know much about soccer. Um, then they join a club and they are forced to travel probably. So hopefully they get seen, but again, driven by, by more by college than driven by, I want to be a pro. So yeah, it's, it's, that's going to be, a, continue to be a, a tough one for U.S. soccer. No, definitely. And you mentioned, like, really interestingly, Ajax, Dennis Burkamp's coaching the U10s, where Ajax are like the poster boys for development, right? So they've, they've got it all the way through from the minute someone's kicking a ball all the way up to the pro team. And, and that's like, they're a shining example of what development looks like. They've been, as you've experienced firsthand. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you, there's, there's quite a few clubs in the um, world that are known to, you know, to develop players uh, that, that go on in great careers. We used to be able to hold those players uh, with, with, with Johan Cruyff being the first big player to leave in, in the early uh, 70s. I think it was after the 74 World Cup. And Rinus Migos, one of the greatest coaches, legendary coach, going to Barcelona as well. That started the, the exodus of players, you know, <laughs> of, of, of three generations right now. Johan Neeskens, Johnny Rep. Uh, Johan Cruyff, uh, Ruth Kroll, God, those guys all ended up outside of the Netherlands. And you get the next generation of Frank Reichardt and Ruth Gullet and Edgar Davids and Seydorf. Um, you know, and now you look again at Matthijs de Licht and it's just a conveyor belt because it's done, done correctly. 
Uh, I'm not saying that. Can you take the Ajax philosophy and just instill it, boom, in this country? No, you, 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 you can't. Uh, Amsterdam is unique where most of those players come from, and not all of them, uh, because um, uh, Ajax also still signs players at 16, 17, 18, be it Scandinavians, or even be it um, Frankie the Young that, that, that played at either neck or knock. Uh, when he was a 16-year-old. So Ajax didn't really develop them, but they still are very keen. You know, Luis Suarez started at Groningen and ended up at, at, at Ajax as well for, for a small fee. So yeah. buy low, sell high, and that's the only way some clubs, smaller clubs in the smaller soccer countries like Portugal and, and Holland can survive right now and, and, and France as well. No, definitely. And you mentioned you, you mentioned earlier Klopp and the kind of the changes in coaching from even a few years ago. It's always fascinating to me how when these players transition, whether it's Suarez or, or the players are coming out and, and exploding onto the scene when they're young, now they're uh, paid so handsomely. I find it really interesting and I would like to hear your thoughts just on how these coaches keep hold of some of these players, whether it's Guardiola or, or Klopp, how do they keep hold of the, the ego and the man management when the players are, are paid so well and it's, the game's changed significantly in the last decade? So what, what are your thoughts on, on how these coaches keep hold of that and keep kind of adapting to the modern game? Yeah, and, and, and you see now what, what's happening with, with Mourinho and, mm-hmm. and you see what happens with most of the cynical, hard-ass you know, managers. Mm. Uh, the Bill Purcells of the world, in the NFL, couldn't couldn't survive nowadays. Uh, you look at the NFL, you look at the NBA. You see younger coaches. You see coaches that are very intelligent. Coaches that understand technology. Coaches that are data driven. Understands how important data is. Coaches that surround themselves with with people that are are very good in respective areas, but more so in nutrition and mental health. You know, mental health is still an area of the game where I think you can make great strides and those newer, younger coaches have a very keen understanding of all of those things. And um, they are good humans. And when you're a good human and you're knowledgeable, uh, players will still respect, respect, respect you. If you are a very good coach, but you throw your players under the bus in the modern era, like... Mo does it. it um, they turn on you, and that, that has shown right now that uh, the old school coaches, just hard ass coaches, basically, um, it's very hard for them to have a whole group buy into their 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 philosophy. And if you look at Klopp and Guardiola, yes, they they are the leaders, but they're also this this really understanding a real uh, a great feel of level of democracy within within the uh, locker room when i read interviews of virgil van dyke and those guys they 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 talk about strategy they talk about um how they're playing you know you go 10 20 years back players rarely ventured into how they played how they can accomplish certain goals and where they need to get better um so i think that, that those coaches have a very keen understanding of of the psyche of humans and the psyches of pro athletes and, and, and how to tap into that, make them part of your, um, that's what I try to do. I, I try to, at the end of the day, um, have my players challenge me at times as well and, and think with me. 
how we could solve problems. Because it's all about solving problems at the end of the day, both on, but more so on the field. Um, and the preparation that's done. And, you know, you, you look at your own club, they've got a throw-in coach. They've got a set-piece coach. They've got a mental coach. They've got a nutritionist. They've got um, drones flying over practice. And they can record everything. The data immediately comes back. When I, when I, my assistant coaches spend sometimes two days breaking down a VHS take of my opponent. Um, you know, you sit there, you, you, you fast forward, you rewind it, you fast forward, you clip one little thing. Now it's all done for you. So the guys that surround themselves with, with, with the right people in the right positions where in soccer you can still make um, strides, um, you know, those are the guys that, that, that I think players want to play for. No, definitely. And it's like, yeah, I think you used the word earlier. It's like uh, it's democratized a little bit more now where there's uh, a way more of a, a social feel to it versus a, a dictator almost, right? Where you had like one manager, he's in charge, everyone gets told what to do and that's it. And instead it's like more of an arm around the player now and, and befriending them almost. Like some of these coaches just seem like they're, they're friendly, so friendly with the players. They're like, uh, I don't even know if it's a father figure, like a, a fun uncle maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Absolutely. And my evolution in, in, in soccer, I was a hard-ass disciplinarian. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I changed over, over, over time. Um, and, and that's what you, you have to do. I, I had a great running with Carlos Elpida Valderrama, you know, where I just would, would basically one day embarrass him in front of the group. And mm. he's Latin. And he, you know, he very proud. And he confronted me. Um, and that was a learning lesson for me, you know. I started to try to understand different cultures. Mm. Um, I, I couldn't just approach everybody from my, my own Dutch mindset, the way I was raised, the way I was educated. Uh, I had to make, understand the difference between a Latin American player and a European player versus an American player. And trying to make that all together. So I had a lot of uh, team building um, things that I did both within practice, you can team build within practice, but also outside of practice, uh, be, meaning, you know, everybody had to take English classes. All our English speakers had to take Spanish classes so we, they could converse with, uh, with, their, with their teammates. And the challenges become tougher and tougher with social media and, and guys not being able to, to focus. So I had to, I had to make a, a change. And I think the coaches that are not willing to do that, like maybe a Mourinho, mm. um, they're going to fall by the, by the, by the wayside eventually. He might have still some success for Tottenham within the next year or two, you know, uh, based on if you can buy certain players that can still function within, within the team. But overall, if you look at more of a long-term process and you look at what Pep Guardiola has done and Klopp, uh, not just in England right now, but from the start to the careers, there's, there's a lot of synergy there of, of what, what you just said, a more democratic approach, more human approach, still though with a set of rules and regulations and a set of discipline, because without discipline, you won't win too much either. Uh, but, but, but balancing that so finely and, and, and keenly, as you said again, when do I need to be a parent? When do I need to be an uncle? When do I need to be a, a tough guy? Um, and those guys are, are very good in, in sniffing out uh, 
what particular humans need at a particular time um, during practice, during a pregame, or during a game uh, whatsoever. And, and it's interesting, too, that the players always speak highly of, you know, somebody said the other day, Jurgen Klopp is even funnier when he's drunk. You know, how, how <laughs> do you ever, you ever think that a player would say it about Mourinho? No, they, they, they actually could say that. The club will get back to them and go, yeah, I'm actually a funny dude when I'm drunk. I'm not drunk all the time, but, you know, I, you know that, players want to play for a guy like that. Yeah, it's like the humanization of the, the manager versus before where it's like there's a bit of mystery and it's, like you said, it's like to- total control where they don't want to let their guard down because somebody might take advantage right. of it. Yeah, yeah you, you need to. That's a very fine line. I learned to, I got to make myself vulnerable, not, not artificially, but I'm vulnerable in certain areas. Why, why not show that to players? I never did that early in my career. I was mm-hmm. tough. I was hard. I was, you know, I, I couldn't show weaknesses because my, my, my father taught me to. Uh, reading this Meagles and Young Cruyff were very hard on me when I, when I played for Meagles and when I played with Cruyff as well, you know. Um, a mindset of, of almost like driven by fear of failure, you know. I mean, I don't think that Liverpool is driven by fear of failure. Players that play for Mourinho, I think, are driven by fear of failure because if you make a mistake, you get called out. You might not start the next game. So there's a huge difference. You can fear failure only works for a year or two. You know, the other, the opposite will work, will, will work longer. It might take you a little longer to get there, but when you gain success, you can probably sustain it for a longer period of time. Definitely. It's like adapt or die, right? And like many things in life, you, you need to evolve and adapt to the, to the new circumstances. Otherwise you get left behind. So I, I've, yep. I heard, I heard recently a, a really interesting, it was, it was a very cool story about the, your time at Tampa. And it, it seems like you got the balance right there anyway. Can you tell us a little bit about that period of your coaching? Because I, I heard this last week and it was a really cool story. So what, what was your time in Tampa like? Yeah, it was, you know, God, here, here I am, um, you know, early, or mid-30s. I'm becoming a head coach in the first year of, of, of MLS. Um, every coach's dream both in this country, but also outside of this country. We had Frank Stapleton with quite a few um, uh, coaches that came from, from abroad. So uh, mm. the president, Farukureshi, you know, took a little bit of a gamble on me, but, but steeped in my Dutch tradition and being able to spend time with Cruyff, I, I knew that I needed to build a team um, in the spine. The access was very important. I got Frank Yellop, former Ipswich Town player, Clay Coyman, uh, who started for the U.S. in 1994. Uh, I got Martin Vasquez as my holding midfielder behind Carlos Alpibe Valderrama. Uh, Martin spoke, and not the main reason, but Martin was fluent in English and in uh, Spanish, and he represented both the Mexican and the U.S. national team. Back then, you could make a one-time switch when you played for a senior team. Um, so he was able to guide Valderrama from a soccer standpoint, but also verbally early Early during our, our days at Tampa, I knew that Carlos didn't speak really a lick of English, and I needed to get information to him as quickly as possible, uh, as often as I could. And during games, that's hard, but my, my whistle to Martin, he knew what needed to be said to Carlos verbally, you know. Uh, and then Roy Lasseter <laughs> that, that, that scored, you know, 28 goals that record stood for, what, 24, 26 years, I, I think. That, that team was, was special. It was special because I, 
I'd stayed in this country when the NESL collapsed. Most of the international players went back home. Mm. And I said, I love this country. I'm, I'm, I want to stay here and give something back. And I'm so happy I did because I was able to give something back in 1996 at the start of a new pro league um, uh, because the accumulation of the 94 World Cup being here and FIFA awarding basically that World Cup here if we would start a league in 1996. I was used by Sunil Galati and, and Ivan Gazidis leading up to MLS to help them discover some players abroad and bring them and bring them to this, uh, this country. So I traveled. I knew the domestic game very well. And I knew outside of Bruce Arena, Ziggy Schmidt, that there weren't too many other coaches that had great knowledge um, of the player pool in this country. Um, example, I picked Steve Ralston, like in the 12th round, which is then a hundred plus pick, let's say, because he didn't play his senior year in college for FIU. But I'd seen him, because I was locally, lived in Fort Lauderdale, in his junior year, and he was absolutely brilliant. And Steve mm. Ralston becomes the rookie of the year, 1996. Roy Lazar, the um, leading goal scorer. Carlos Valderrama, the MVP. Clay Coyman, the defender of the year. Uh, eight guys represented in the MLS All-Star Game. So that was a special, real special year. But I worked very hard leading up to that to identify the right guys um, not just from a playing standpoint, but also from a chemistry standpoint. And as I said again, language became important for me to get things to cross in a short preseason. Um, and we got off and running really well compared to other clubs that I think that struggled with, with you know, the international section of their, of their group in the locker room uh, that didn't look ahead and, and, and uh, prep properly to put a team together to set again that had a very strong spine, that had some athleticism on, on the outside. I, I, I looked at my tips model, technique, insights, and the P, the personality. I want players with personality. That year, we had quite a few players with great personality, um, which made it a real enjoyable experience for me. No, that's great. It's, it, it's so interesting to like for you just to see that the contrast between MLS now and NASL and and the early days of the MLS it must be like really just kind of shocking to see how far the games come from all those different perspectives yeah with, 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 without a doubt I mean you know I must say in the NASL uh, quick story I mean, Ricardo Villa Ricardo Villa went to England with Ozzy Ardiles um, one of the great stars of the 78 World Cup Argentinian team that beats my Netherlands in the finals for the second consecutive World Cup. We lost against Germany in 74 in Germany. Uh, and Ricardo Villa, Villa didn't care about development of soccer in this country. He was there for, for the money. Mm. Um, Carlos Valderrama, who still, by the way, lives in, in the United States, he did care about the development of, uh, of players. So that was important for me as well, to understand the psyche of those players. I talked to a lot of coaches that I've coached those players um, because some of them were in the late 20s, early 30s even, and in, in, in Alpibe's uh, uh, case. But I knew they were good teammates and I knew that, that Carlos would take one or two players under his wing, which he did. And Martin Vasquez did. And Clay Coyman was a brilliant leader. And, and I looked at his, his career and went, wow, if a guy at 20, 21 goes to Mexico, starts in the third division, and then becomes a captain of Pumas, one of the greatest institutions, a gringo, 
basically in the early 90s uh, I go I want that guy on my my team um, and you know those were all great great choices they were just great guys both on and off the field for a variety of, 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 of reasons but it all fit together in that puzzle that I, I started and, and well, we didn't win it at the end. I've got to tip my cap to Bruce Arena and, and DC United. Uh, we were the best team in the regular season, without a doubt. Ran away with the uh, with the supporter shields, um, but just you know couldn't win it that year. That might have been the most talented team ever to play, maybe not to win the MLS Cup, and that that still hurts for me. Yeah, the, the pain doesn't go away from football defeats, does it? No, it doesn't. They, they actually, it comes harder and harder. The, the winds, the winds are like, yeah. And you're worried about next week already. The losses really, that dagger, just stays there. It just goes deeper into your heart. Every loss, especially if you get fired first time, then you all of a sudden go, oh my god, wait a minute. You know, uh, I knew I signed up for that, but those are never nice occasions when again you have to move your whole family and there's so many other things that I initially didn't even think about. Because um, it was pretty smooth sailing early in my, my my career as a coach, until I got fired for the first time by the New England Revolution, mm. and I realized, okay, this is yeah, it's a re reality uh, check. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, healthy also because it, it it allows you to, have to say, all right, what did I do wrong? And you mm. got to do self, self self analysis is so important. And if you can get a group of players that can self analyze themselves as a group or as individuals that's that's so good to see as well you know my my teams i always encourage them to self-analyze and a lot of players did critical analysis and i had to do that a few times after i got fired where where did, did i go wrong yeah no and, and like you said you, you learn from failure right it's way, way easier to learn from failures than when you win yeah the moment's great but then you know, you learn so much more when you uh, get your ass kicked. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. Also, finally, before we let you go, so obviously you're doing, everyone's seeing you on TV and uh, doing the an analyst part, but what's next in, in football for you? Is there, uh, is there anything coming up that you're looking to do and in, in back, back in the game and, and doing any coaching? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got a project that obviously with American Samoa, that was just a special. Yeah, it was cool. Um, I saw that special time in my in my life and, mm -hmm. and um, well I don't know what the pandemic now what, what it is but I, I almost had agreed to go back and and guide him through the next qualifying phase which would have been August September of this year and it still is going to happen obviously because there, there will be a, a World Cup eventually the formats might change from confederation to confederation um, if the right uh, job, uh, you know, comes. I've been an academy director. I'm a teacher by trade. I got my master's. Mm. I love to teach. Really, I really, I really love to teach. I could still function on the highest level. Don't get me wrong. I know how to put a team together. I know how to win. Um, but that wasn't fun the last few years on the highest uh, level. I love my under twenty experience, developing players, precious talent. Um, but I also am Dutch. I love to travel. I'm an American. American Samoa experience personally and professionally was absolutely awesome. So there's a, a big chance, uh, which they don't know yet, although they have asked me, that I, I, I want to go back and, and do this one more time with, with, uh, uh, with a very special group of 
people or, 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 or great nation or a great um, enclave of the United States, American Samoa. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So where can people follow you just as far as your uh, up-to-date stuff is on Twitter and Instagram? What's the best place for people to follow along? Yeah, I'm not very good at my, my, my self-promotion, but it's, um, I don't even know what my, my Twitter handle is. I think it's, it's is it T. Rungan or something like that? Yeah, I'll, say maybe I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up and I'll make sure I, I add in. So yeah, it's T. T. Rungan, anyone that's looking to, to follow along. And, uh, and, oh, thank, thank you. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And then uh, Instagram as well. Are you, are you doing much on Instagram? Um, if I do something on Twitter, then I paste and whatever, and I put it onto Instagram, which a lot of times <laughs> doesn't come over really well. Then, then I got to attach a picture. So I'm going, what the fuck? Bro? What <laughs> picture shall I? I need somebody to help. I need somebody to help me with that. I don't even know what my Instagram uh, name name is. Uh, maybe the same. I don't know. But if you guys <laughs> yeah. could check that out and put it in there, I would appreciate that, guys. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. And then whenever the whenever we do get back to football, we'll get you back on and we'll talk about some football that's going on. But it's been a pleasure and, and we really appreciate it. Some fascinating insights into the game and wish you the best in health and getting back to business. Same on your end, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks, Thomas. Take care. Cheers. All right, that's it, everyone. It's full time, the end of today's show. I hope everyone enjoyed it. I want to thank Thomas again for coming on. We'll be back on Tuesday. Myself and Tom, the other Tom, English Tom, will be doing our roundup show on Tuesday. And we hope you all check back for that. Thanks again to everyone for taking the time out. We'll be jumping on social media this week, doing some different stuff. So check out social media at a healthy underscore obsession. And yeah, we'll see you all then. Cheers.